Shot on. With Adam Avison, John Field, Ian Morrison, Libby Jones, Indy Leclerc, Christina Smith, and Chris Wallace. Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Adam, and joining me in the studio today are Indy and Libby. Hello. Hi there. In the show this time, we talk to Dr. Matt Auger. We find out what you can see in the night sky this month, and Christina rounds up the latest news. But first, before all of that, here's the feedback. So, first, we haven't had any post, but that doesn't matter because we've had an email from our self-titled loyal fan, Ron Jones. And we'd like to thank him for his comments on the March edition of the Jogcast, and we do hope that you will visit Jodro Bank soon. We have had some nice Facebook comments about the latest show um, regarding the Planck mission. Matthew Wilde says that he wishes he did this type of thing for his job and asks us if we've got any jobs to, to go around. Uh, probably not right now. <laughs> Kim Mance says, The last time I saw something like this, I was taking a test to determine whether I had colour vision deficiency. So I guess that is a... An interesting way of looking at the Planck map. Um. Actually, that would make a good April Fool if you put some num- numbers in there for like colour blind tests. Yeah. <laughs> See if the Planck scientists can spot the difference. And um, Charlie Law says, This is brilliant, especially as this is what my physics coursework is on currently. So, you know, the Jodcast is always happy to help in that respect. On Twitter, the Planck show has also made quite a lot of waves. JamXUK29M says, Getting my geek on with the Jodcast and Mars Extra. Gretwick Down says it was a really nice discussion of the plant construction and results from the Jogcast. And Bloggerama says, great show, good good reporting on a quite difficult subject. And on Twitter, I'd also like to say thank you for the retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do by sending some, us some posts. The address is on the website. Or on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jogcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jogcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. Or via the website at www.jodcast.net. Now, from the World Wide Web to audio that has come from the other end of the world, here's John Field with the Southern Night Sky. Kia ora and welcome to the April Night Sky from Carter Observatory. The comments that graced our skies during March have now moved into the northern sky and we hope they are putting on a great display. Jupiter may be spotted low in the west after sunset. On the 14th and 15th of April, the crescent moon will appear close to Jupiter. On the evening of the 26th of April, New Zealand and Australia will be treated to an occultation of the second magnitude star, Alpha Libra. For NZ, the occultation starts at 10.35 for Auckland, 10.41 for Wellington and 10.43 for Christchurch, and all will end by midnight. For Australia, the starting times range from 7.21 for Alice Springs, to 8.29 for Hobart. This will be a challenging event as the moon will be only 15 hours past full and will make spotting the star against the moon's glare difficult. Observing through a telescope with high magnification will give you the best chance of observing this event. Saturn can be seen rising opposite in the east and will be visible throughout the night sky. Saturn reaches opposition on the 28th of April. The sixth planet from the sun, Saturn, like Jupiter, is a gas giant but slightly smaller in size and about one third the mass. Small telescopes reveal the rings and its largest moon, Titan. Like Earth, Saturn has a polar tilt and seasons, and one result of this is that the angle we view the rings at will change. The rings are tilting over, allowing us to see more of their structure, and due to their reflectivity, the overall brightness of the viewed planet increases. When seen edge on, the overall brightness of the planet will decrease. 
Orion Gemini can be found in the northwest after sunset. Canis Major and Minor, Orion's two hunting dogs, can be found following Orion across the sky. In the south we find the large and small Magellanic clouds, appearing as two luminous patches near Achenar. Both are easily seen with the unaided eye from the location of the dark sky. They are two small galaxies, each made of billions of stars. The large cloud contains many clusters of young luminous stars seen as patches of light in binoculars and telescopes. The LMC is about 163,000 light years away and the SMC 200,000 light years away. In the large cloud there is a glowing cloud of dust and gas called the Tarantula Nebula. Like the Orion and Carina Nebulae, this gas glows due to the ultraviolet light from a cluster of very hot young stars at the centre of the nebula. The cloud is about 800 light years across. It is easily seen in binoculars and can be seen by eye on moonless nights. This nebula is one of the brightest known. If this cloud was at the same distance as the Orion nebula is from the Earth, it would appear as bright as the full moon. These nebulae are regions where vast clouds of dust and gas are forming into clusters of stars and planets. Another hazy patch can be found near the small cloud, and it is called 47 Tacani. It is a naked-eye globular cluster of millions of stars, only 15,000 light-years away, and has no connection to the small cloud. Globular clusters are mostly made of very old stars, 10 billion years or more, at least twice the age of the Sun. A telescope is needed to see a decreasing number of stars fading away from the edge of the cluster. Another globular cluster called Omega Centauri can be found left of the pointers. It is much larger than 47 Tacani, with a mass of about 1.5 million suns. It is about 17,000 light years away. There is mounting evidence that this is the core of a small galaxy that has lost outlying stars to the Milky Way. Alpha Centauri is the brighter and lower of the two pointer stars. It is the closest naked eye star, 4.3 light years away. Alpha Centauri is a binary star because it has two stars that are the same brightness and size as our own star, the Sun, orbiting around each other in a period of 80 years. The discovery of an Earth-sized planet around the fate of the two stars was announced in November of 2012. A very faint and slightly closer star, Proxima Centauri, orbits a quarter of a light year from the brighter pair. Beside Crux, the Southern Cross, is the Colsec Nebula, which is a cloud of dust and gas dimming the more distant stars in the Milky Way. Many similar dark nebulae can be seen along the Milky Way. These clouds of dust and gas eventually collapse, forming clusters of stars. Near to the second brightest star in Crux is a jewel box. This cluster of young luminous stars is about 6,400 light years away, and the cluster formed about 10 million years ago. To the unaided eye, it looks like a faint, fuzzy star. Binoculars will reveal individual members of this cluster. Along with Crux, there are two other crosses in our southern sky. The Diamond Cross sits near to Crux and includes the Feta Carina cluster sitting at one point of the cross. It appears as a single bright star surrounded by a number of fainter stars. It is also called the Five of Diamonds or the Southern Pleiades, due to their resemblance to the Pleiades when viewed through a telescope. This cluster is about 500 light years away and is also about 10 million years old. Higher up and almost overhead is the False Cross. This group of four equally bright stars sits to one side of the Milky Way. In the region between the Diamond and False Crosses, there are a number of clusters in nebula that can be easily seen with the eye and in binoculars or telescopes. Mercury is in the morning sky during April and it will appear as a bright magnitude zero star. On the 20th and the 21st, Mercury will sit near to Uranus and in this conjunction should be visible in binoculars. Venus and Mars are sitting close to the Sun and are invisible to us. Venus will return to our evening sky in May. We wish all of our listeners clear skies. Thanks for that, John. Now here's Ian Morrison with what you can see in the northern night sky. The night sky, April 2013. Well, after sunset, that lovely region of the sky with Orion, Taurus 
in Germany and our Riga above, is setting towards the west. But you can actually still see Jupiter for a short while in the first part of the month, and I'll come back to that later on. Moving over towards the south from Germany, one crosses a fairly blank part of the sky, the constellation of Cancer the Crab. There's a very nice cluster, an open cluster, a wide open cluster called M44, or the Beehive Cluster, at its heart. And down to the lower left is another cluster called M67, both working looking out for with binoculars. But then, more obviously, one comes to that rather lovely constellation of Leo the Lion, looking like the lions on their haunches in Trafalgar Square. The head and mane of the lion forms what's called the sickle, and at the bottom of that is the brightest star, Alpha Leonis, or Regulus. There are some very nice galaxies underneath the belly of the lion, and they can also be picked up with a reasonable pair of binoculars on a dark night or a small telescope. Coming over from Leo is another fairly blank part of the sky. It's the constellation of Virgo. But between the star De Nebula, which is sort of the back end of Leo the Lion, and the star called Vindematrix, which is in Virgo, there's an area called the Realm of the Galaxies. Virgo and Coma Berenices are the two constellations. And here there are quite a large number of brightish galaxies which are part of the Messier catalogue. So it's a lovely region to look at with a medium-sized telescope. But you have to have a night sky which is really dark, not too much light pollution and no moon in the sky. But then we come to a really quite bright star. It's the sort of orangey-yellow star called Arcturus in Bootes. And further over towards the east, a little arclet of stars called Corona Borealis, the northern crown. And then we come to Hercules. The four brightest stars of Hercules make up what's called the keystone. They're slightly further apart, the top pair, than the bottom pair. If, with binoculars or a small telescope, you work up from the bottom right to the top right, about two-thirds of the way or so, you should see a little fuzzy ball. And that's a globular cluster called M13. It's the best, the brightest globular cluster that we can see in our northern sky. These are very old spherical distributions of stars, million or more stars in some of them, and they date, we believe, from the origin of our Milky Way galaxy. Rising quite late in the night, but coming ever higher as April goes on, is in fact the bright star Vega in the constellation of Lyra the Lyre. Coming upwards from Leo, we come to Ursa Major and the bright stars forming the plough. I'll come back to the plough later on. And further over still towards the north, Ursa Minor with Polaris the Pole Star. And winding its way around is a very not particularly visible constellation called Draco the Dragon. Well, what about the planets this month? Well, Jupiter is in the constellation of Taurus the Bull. It's still visible in the western sky after sunset, moving eastwards across the sky. At the beginning of April, it'll be shining at magnitude minus 2.1. That's quite bright. And it's just 5.5 degrees above the star Aldebaran, the eye of the bull. We're moving away from it. So as the month progresses, its angular diameter drops slightly from 35.8 to 33.6 arc seconds. 
but a small telescope will still show plenty of detail on the surface, such as the equatorial bands. And of course, the rather lovely four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. On the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, I have given a list of the relatively few number of times in the early evening when the red spot will be roughly central in the disk and so visible. But as sadly Jupiter gets smaller in angular size, it'll become less obvious. So if Jupiter really is past its best. Saturn this month is coming to one of its best two months. It lies in Libra, the scales. It rises about half an hour after nightfall as April begins. And so we'll transit at an elevation of about 25 degrees at about two o'clock in the morning. It reaches opposition on the 28th of April. So it will then be visible all night and due south around midnight universal time. As it does so, of course, its magnitude brightens and its angular size increases. The good news, of course, is that the rings have now opened out. They're about 18 degrees from the line of sight, the best for about six years. Around opposition, the rings will extend to about 43 arc seconds across and 13 arc seconds in width. And we're now looking at this planet's southern hemisphere, while much of the northern hemisphere will be hidden by the rings. With a small scope, you should be able to spot Cassini's division, and that lies within the A and the B rings of the ring system. And if the night is particularly dark and clear, you might spot the inner ring, it's called the crepe ring or the C ring, which is really rather faint. And of course, you should be able to see Saturn's largest moon, Titan, given the small telescope. One problem with Saturn is it's now in a southerly part of the ecliptic. It never rises that high in the sky, perhaps up to 28 degrees, and sadly that's going to get worse during the next few years. Mercury is basically going around behind the sun, so we're not really going to be able to see it. However, at the very beginning of April, it will in fact be fairly low on the horizon at dawn, but because the ecliptic, along which of course it lies, makes a very shallow angle to the horizon, its elevation will be very small. You'll probably need to use binoculars to pick it up. Obviously don't use binoculars after the sun has risen, but you might just spot it low on the horizon in the east. Mars passes behind the sun on April the 18th and thus will not be visible for several months. Till it appears, of course, in the pre-dawn sky. Venus, likewise, that reached superior conjunction on the far side of the Sun on March the 28th, and so will not be visible for virtually the whole of the month. It might just be seen very low in the west-northwest, about 20 minutes after sunset, at the very end of April. But you'll need binoculars to spot it, even though its magnitude will be minus 3.9. And again, Protect your eyes, do not search for it until after the sun has set. Well, what about the highlights of the month? Well, as I've said, Saturn has the first of two good months to observe it, reaching opposition on the 28th of April. It will then lie nine times further away than the Earth from the sun, and it shines at magnitude plus 0.3. The 18 arc second disk is surrounded by its lovely ring system, 
extending for about 43 arc seconds. To find it in the sky, well, you can start with the arc of the plough's handle and follow that downwards, first to the bright star I mentioned earlier called Arcturus in Bootes, and continue down to find the white first magnitude star Spica in Virgo. Saturn, which is a little brighter than Spica, lies just to its left in the constellation of Libra and will appear slightly yellow in colour. If you hold a pair of, say, 10 by 50 binoculars steady, you should pick up Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude 8.2. And as I've said, a small telescope will show the rings. And if you have a telescope of 6 to 8 inches, coupled with a night of good seeing and a magnification of about times 200, you'll see Saturn and its ring system in their full glory. Saturn rotates quickly with a day of just ten and a half hours. Its equator bulges slightly, so it appears a little squashed. Like Jupiter, it does show belts, but their colours are quite muted in comparison. Due to the orientation of Saturn's rotation axis of 27 degrees with respect to the plane of the solar system, the orientation of the rings, as seen by us, changes as it orbits the Sun. And twice each orbit, they lie edge on to us, and so can hardly be seen. This last happened in the year 2009, and they are now, as I said, opening out. They'll continue to open out until about May 2017, and then narrow again until March 2025, when they'll be edge on. Well, we've had a comet in the sky. It's called Comet Pan-Stars, named after the instrument that actually discovered it a couple of years ago. It's hard to say how visible that will be during April. I'm recording this not soon after mid-March. Now, I was able to spot the comet and take a photograph. That was on the 13th of March, the only clear night we've actually had in the last uh, week or so. It wasn't terribly bright, and you had to have binoculars to pick it up against the relatively bright sky background. How it will be seen later in March and early April is hard to say. A good thing is that its elevation is actually rising, and once we get into April, it becomes a circumpolar object, so in principle visible all night. It moves into the constellation of Andromeda and then carries on northwards. And on the night sky page, I show a little chart showing you precisely where in the sky it will be. The best time to look for it and it could be a wonderful imaging opportunity, is around the 1st to 6th of April, when it passes very close to M31, the Andromeda galaxy. I think on about the 4th, both would be encompassed in the field of view of a pair of binoculars. So I do hope it won't have got too faint by then, and we can have a lovely view. I will try and update you on the Night Skies page as we come to the beginning of April, and also as we move through it. So look in there for any updates. Jupiter. Though well past its best, Jupiter is still worth observing in the southwestern sky after sunset. It still lies in Taurus, moving eastwards, and is not far, as I said, from the star Aldebaran, the eye of the bull. Look out for the equatorial belts, and the four Galilean satellites as they weave their way around. 
On April the 13th, a thin crescent moon will join Jupiter and the Hyades and the Pleiades clusters in Taurus. That should be a very nice evening view if the sky is clear. On April the 25th, the moon will be in partial eclipse. The shadow of the Earth will just clip the extreme northern edge, which means the top half of the moon should look a little bit darker than the lower half. Mid-eclipse is at 2100 hours British summer time, which of course will be in by then. And interestingly, that night, the moon passes just 4.5 degrees below Saturn. So if you find the moon, look upwards a bit with a pair of binoculars, and there will be Saturn. And finally, we can sometimes see some of the brighter asteroids. An asteroid number four, Vesta, also called a minor planet, shining at magnitude 8.4, should be visible close to the open cluster M35 in Gemini, low to the west-northwest. Again, I'll give a little chart to let you know where to look. So, we have a chance still of seeing the comet. Saturn is rising in ascendant. Should be lovely to look at, even though it's a low elevation. And I do hope you get some good observing during April. Thanks for that, Ian. Now we get to the part of the show where we fit in all those things we can't fit in anywhere else, the ends and odds. So my ends and odds for, for this month um, is about supernovae. Now, supernovae are the most powerful um, explosions or events uh, known in, in the universe. And they're visible um, uh, through almost throughout the universe. They come in two main types. Uh, type 1A supernovae happen uh, when a white dwarf has stolen too much material from a companion star, um, which then causes it to essentially explode. And type 2 supernovas happen when very massive stars, about from 10 to 100 times as massive as the sun, they run out of fuel, collapse into a huge, uh, really dense lump, and then explode outward, um, blasting all sorts of stuff out into space. Now, Astronomers reckon that they found a new type of supernova, which are essentially mini-supernovae. They're calling them Type 1AX, and uh, these are just miniature versions of Type 1A supernovae. So we've got a white dwarf, a sort of dim uh, star at the end of its life, w- with a companion star, and the white dwarf is uh, is leaching off uh, helium from the companion star. And by some as-yet-unsure mechanism, this causes an explosion but that is noticeably smaller than uh, than a, a regular Type 1A supernova. Um, and astronomers have been seeing these since about 2002, and they've built up a catalogue of 25 uh, so-called mini-supernovae, uh, and they reckon they're, they're definitely onto something. So, as I said, it's unclear as to what causes this. Either helium in the companion star starts fusing, which causes, uh, just like a nuclear bomb, causes an explosion, a shockwave, or the helium that the white the white dwarf has accumulated makes it a lot denser and and changes the sort of interior chemistry which can cause heavier elements inside it to fuse and again to trigger an explosion. The one thing that separates one uh, AX from one A is that one AX seems to leave the white dwarf intact after the explosion, or to a certain extent, um, there is there is definitely something that's still there, whereas in a type one A explosion. Everything just gets blown out of the sky, quite literally. <laughs> um, so, another thing is that so one AXs uh, aren't supposedly that rare. They're only about a third as common as, as supernovae, 
Um, the reason more haven't been detected is that because they're just uh, a lot fainter than type 1A. So now the goal is to, with new surveys, is to sort of detect as many um, faint objects and uh, as we can and hopefully build up our knowledge of, of these new mini supernovae. As they're so faint, have they been found relatively close by? Um, I'm not sure about sort of the distance uh, they've been found at. However, there is... Um, one thing which is that no, none of these have been found in elliptical galaxies which are filled with older stars, so it suggests that um, they're present mainly in, in younger star systems. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'd expect the different evolutionary states to go on in the yeah. in spiral galaxies, so you'd expect more companions so you could detect them more. Now, a lot closer to home than, than galaxies far, far away. Um there's a new exhibit at the Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre, which I think is really cool. They have built what they believe to be the world's biggest orrery. So an orrery is a mechanical representation of the solar system. So uh, it's essentially a much, much scaled down version of the solar system built out of uh, gears and cogs, which allows the proper rates of rotation of every object, including spinning on their axes and orbiting the sun um, for every body in the solar system, well, I guess all the planets. It's five metres in diameter, and the director of the Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre believes that it is the biggest in the world, which is very cool, um, and it is built out of 52 brass gears, meaning the planets can do their orbits at exactly the right rate. It's this new that we actually haven't been down to see it yet, <laughs> so. but it's very exciting, and uh, yeah, it's cool that we might have the world's biggest. If you do know of one bigger, let us know. I would love to see all the mechanics of it. So, well, I think you can. I've seen a picture and you can see some of the cogs behind it, so that's so cool. Because the engineering <laughs> and putting all that together yeah. in such a size as well and making sure everything's going around so accurately, Yeah, that's going to be some very cool engineering. It's like a massive, uh, complicated Swiss watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take I'm that sure to Switzerland you, and make sure them. you can buy a, a watch that does, you know, has the planets going. <laughs> I know what I'm saving up for now. <laughs> Following on from the Discovery Centre, when I was little, I bought some dehydrogenated ice cream as space food, what ah, people yes. eat on the, in the space station. At that time, it was Mia. But mm. now, it's the International Space Station. And Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield has been making a series of videos showing what life is like living and working on the space station. And in these videos, he's also been getting his um, cooking skills uh, and putting them to the test uh, and has been making food such as peanut butter sandwiches right. and one of the other things he's also been cooking is spinach Okay, so it's an interesting meal choice right now. spinach <laughs> and peanut butter, <laughs> peanut butter yeah. <laughs> oh you have to have your greens somewhere <laughs> um, so obviously boiling spinach is going to be a lot more complicated than it is making a sandwich but even so you'd have to still worry about where all the breadcrumbs are getting yeah oh <laughs> <laughs> tidying up in three dimensions rather than it all just falling to the ground. <laughs> yeah, also some of the other videos include washing your hands or how to clip your nails. Uh, I don't know if I'll watch that one. I don't, yeah, I don't think the I'll rest of them, The rest of them sound interesting. I might have a look when I get back to my desk. But <laughs> washing your hands, I mean, and all other things involving water or liquids, I mean, that... Yeah, in, it goes in everywhere in space, doesn't it? So you get these nice blobs of water floating through the you just space have to station. <laughs> catch the blob yeah. of water and use that to wash with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we take gravity for granted down here on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so next we have Chris and Christina talking to Dr. Matt Auger. Joining us in the studio today is Dr. Matt Auger from the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge. Hi, Matt. Yeah. 
So you're giving a talk later about dark matter in galaxies. So first of all, what is dark matter? That's a good question.、Um, we don't really know. Basically, it's it's more of an idea. We understand that galaxies, clusters, the universe itself has to have more mass than the mass that we actually see. It has to have more mass than the mass that we see in stars. It has to have more mass than the mass that we see in in gas and other things. So we have a model for what that extra mass is, and that model is dark matter. Particle physicists have ideas about what this might be, also. So they they think about dark matter as being some exotic new particle that they might want to find. But from an astronomical perspective, most of what it is is really just some additional mass component that we we know that we need, and otherwise don't really have any clue what it is. What about dark matter in particular? Is it that you're looking at? We know quite a bit about dark matter on on very very large scales, on scales of many tens or hundreds of megaparsecs. And most of what we know actually comes from observations of the cosmic microwave background, or observations of how galaxies aggregate and cluster on very large scales. But what I'm interested in is is basically the fundamental question of of what this crazy dark matter stuff actually looks like on much smaller scales inside of galaxies, in the centers of galaxies, where we actually see starlight. It's ironic that we know a lot more about dark matter on scales where there isn't really any light than we do on scales where there is light. And so, w- what I'm interested in in doing is investigating the properties of this dark matter within our galaxies because it makes up most of the mass of the galaxy itself. So, if we want a genuine, interesting description of of what galaxies and clusters actually look like, it turns out that describing the light is just the tip of the iceberg, and we actually need to to describe the dark matter itself. Um, in order to really understand these objects, and so, so that's what I aim to do. So you're trying to probe the the dark matter in the center of galaxies. How do you plan to do that? In my research, I probe dark matter in well, u- using a combination of things. Basically, the only way to observe dark matter is through its gravitational effects, and the way that we observe gravitational effects is either Uh, via its dynamical effect on stars. So, if you have a lot of mass, then stars move much more rapidly as a result of the amount of mass that's there. So, stellar dynamics is one way to investigate how much mass is there, and by inference, how much dark matter is there. Alternatively,、um, and this is really the big part of my research program, I use what's called strong gravitational lensing, which is very akin to lensing in a laboratory or, or like the glasses on your face right now. Where you know you're seeing me because I'm emitting light, or actually light's being reflected off of me and being refracted by your lenses, and it corrects the blurriness that I would otherwise be. For the gravitational lens, if you have a background source, let's say the universe is full of objects very, very far away, those objects are emitting light. The light passes by the the massive galaxy or cluster that I'm interested in, and as it's passing by, it feels the gravitational potential. The gravitational field of that galaxy or cluster, and it leads to a lensing effect, just like the light going through your glasses. It, it it causes the light to bend, to be altered in the directions that it would have gone otherwise. And the amount that the light gets bent is related to the amount of mass that's there. And this is how this gravitational lensing effect tells me about mass. If there's more mass, the light gets bent to a larger degree than if there's less mass, for example. So you can observe the structure of the mass in the centre of a galaxy by looking at the 
the curvature of this light as it goes around this galaxy cluster or galaxy. Effectively, that's exactly right. We 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 watch as the photons get deflected by the massive potential. Mm -hmm. um, and if you were actually, if you were to take the glasses off your face and sort of tilt them at an angle at the light, you would see multiple images of this light behind my head. Um, and our massive structure is doing the exact same thing as the glasses in your lenses. But if we were really clever, we could figure out what your prescription was by doing that experiment. Um, and so effectively, I guess what I'm doing is figuring out what the prescription of these galaxies is, figuring out how the mass is actually distributed in these galaxies in order to cause the signals we see. So you use the gravitational lensing to find out the distribution of mass in the galaxy. That's exactly right. And then obviously you need to then try and observe the, the stars and try and see what mass is attributed to mass matter that we know. That's right. And so then what do you actually aim to try and do given that difference, the, the extra mass? What, what are you ultimately trying to find out? So there, there's a couple of interesting things happening here. First is we observe the light in, in starlight, but we, we don't directly infer its mass. And what we try to do is we try to say, well, I observe stars in the Milky Way, and in the Milky Way, I actually can determine the mass of those stars. So then when I observe starlight in a distant galaxy that's, let's say, a, a couple of gigaparsecs away, for those of you at home, giga light years, and I can try to, to relate the light that I see to the actual mass in the stars, much as I would say that, you know, I see the amount of light that's coming from the sun, I know the mass of the sun, it gives me something called a mass-to-light ratio. So I can try to postulate or, or impose a mass-to-light ratio on the stars. But assuming they're like the galaxy. Assuming they're like the Milky Way. And, and this is related, how I turn stellar light into stellar mass <laughs> is via something called the initial mass function or the IMF. It's basically a recipe for going from light to mass. So one thing that we could do in principle is once we have a total mass measurement from gravitational lensing, we can just subtract off the mass due to stars using some mass to light ratio like the Milky Ways, and what we're left with is dark matter. And because we know how the stars are distributed, we can see them, uh, we can infer also then subtracting off that distribution, we can infer subsequently the distribution of dark matter. Now, one thing that we found is that the stellar mass to light ratio turns out to be a non-trivial thing. And indeed, the stellar mass to light ratio of the galaxies I look at is probably not consistent with the stellar mass to light ratio of the Milky Way. So you're saying that if you were to look at some a piece of light, which you said would be like the sun, I would actually attribute to more mass than you'd get from the galaxy in these other galaxies that you're looking at. That's right. And, and the reason for this is via either one of two methods. So the light that we actually see, we are attributing to stellar mass correctly. The problem is that there's a lot of stellar mass in both the Milky Way and these other galaxies that we don't see. For example, you have massive stars which subsequently evolve and, and go supernovae. And after they've gone supernovae, they leave behind what we call a stellar remnant, a neutron star or a black hole. And those things have mass, but no light. And so uh, what we're trying to do is infer how much mass is left over without being able to see their light. And in the Milky Way, you do that by basically saying, well, I see these many supernova remnants per star like the sun. And so there's a relationship that you can write down between those two it's not clear that that relationship holds in external galaxies. Alternatively, there's very low-mass stars, 
what we would call M-dwarf stars. So stars maybe a half or a quarter the mass of the sun. And those stars we also don't see effectively because most of the light that we see is coming from stars very close to the same amount of luminosity as the sun itself. So there could be lots and lots of these low-mass stars in a galaxy contributing significantly to the mass, but not to the light. Now, we've tried to count these stars in the Milky Way and, again, follow the same recipe that, for given the, the number of stars like our sun, we infer some number of stars much lower mass than our sun. And so we can try to apply that recipe to these external galaxies also. And what we found is that these recipes are not consistent with external galaxies, that external galaxies, at least very massive external galaxies, appear to be genuinely different than the Milky Way. So you're saying that the processes in these external galaxies that go to form the stars form more either high-mass stars that go to them black holes or the more low-mass stars which you don't see because they're too dim. That's right. So, the, so you're saying that the fundamental ways that stars form in these galaxies are different. That's right. And so what does that tell you then about galaxy evolution? Because surely the, the, this is, I, I assume this is where this is going. Seeing a difference in particular types of galaxies, surely then you're looking for a difference between those galaxies and our galaxy. So, yes, so this tells us about the, the physical conditions, presumably tells us about the physical conditions when stars were formed in these galaxies. But we know that these galaxies are different from the Milky Way anyways. These galaxies are much more massive than the Milky Way. Uh, the galaxies I, I study tend to be spheroidal old systems, whereas the Milky Way has a lot of young stars and has a significant disk. Our inferences, because these, these objects are very massive and very old, we also think that their stars formed first or earlier in the universe. And so the conditions for star formation of these first galaxies could very well have been different than the conditions for star formation in the Milky Way. I mean, the Milky Way is still forming stars in a universe that is different than the universe was, let's say, 10 or 12 billion years ago. But at the end of the day, all of this business about stellar mass-to-light ratios and weighing the stars is really noise to the <laughs> signal that I really want to investigate. <laughs> okay, which is the dark matter. Which is the dark matter, that's right. So what do you aim to do once you've got rid of that noise? Uh, what do you aim to do with the uh, distribution? Or are you just working on the constraining that noise? No, no, the the picture about the, the noise, so to speak, it's other people's science, so my noise is other people's signal. But mm -hmm. um, I think that that's starting to come into focus um, in part because of of experiments by other groups who do completely different things. And so I think we're starting to learn maybe how these the stellar mass-to-light ratio is working out. But I guess what, what I'm interested in is, is, again, comparing the dark matter structure in galaxies to what maybe theory about structure formation says. So the, the prevailing cosmology right now is something called lambda CDM, which says that the universe is three-quarters dark energy which is, in this case, lambda, or the cosmological constant, and one-quarter dark matter. And in the lambda-CDM paradigm, when you form structures, when you form galaxies and clusters of galaxies, there's a universal profile that comes out of this, something called the, the Navarro-Franken-White profile, but that's, that's not particularly important. So this is a profile for the dark matter distribution? That's right, so yeah. for the density distribution of the dark matter. Mm -hmm. And... You end up with, with something, what we call a universal profile in the sense that galaxies look like small versions of clusters. And the reason for this is that approximately gravity has no scales in, in it. So there's no characteristic mass scale of gravity. There's no characteristic 
spatial or distance scaling gravity. So if I try to figure out how lambda CDM works, I can just set up a computer program where I have a bunch of dark matter particles and I allow it to form structures. And I see that my computer program formed a cluster, and inside of the cluster are a bunch of massive galaxies, and around those massive galaxies are smaller galaxies. But then I can take the exact same computer program. I don't even have to rerun it. I just say, oh, initially I called the mass of my dark matter particle one number. Now I'm going to cut that number by a factor of 100. And initially I called my distance scale one number. I'm going to cut that number by a different factor. So I have the exact same distribution of particles as before. I didn't have to rerun it. But now what I used to call a big massive cluster, because I've changed the units, becomes a galaxy. Clearly those things have the same distribution of particles. I didn't have to rerun the simulation. So this is the universal profile, that galaxies and clusters have the same profile. Now, does that actually happen in real astronomical objects? I think we have interesting ideas about why it might not happen. So by actually quantifying what the dark matter looks like, we can investigate the physics that might cause real structure to deviate from this universal profile. So you're trying to find, effectively, deviations from this lambda CDM profile that you talked about. That's right. Which is pretty hot physics at the moment. That's uh, probably the biggest question, really, I would say. Well, that's because you're an insightful young man. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining us on the Jogcast today and telling us about your research. No problem. Thanks for that, Chris and Christina. And finally, after all of that, here's Christina with the news. This month in the news, cosmological rulers, a distant ocean, and an ancient wonder. Scale, in astronomy, is a concept that can be difficult to appreciate since the distances between stars, galaxies, or the horizon of the universe are so incredibly large that they are completely divorced from the day-to-day life on Earth. The problem is that these distances need to be measured to an accuracy of just a fraction of a percent because we rely on them to establish the properties of stars and the universe as a whole. As distance is gradually measured with ever greater accuracy, it becomes possible for new physics to become unlocked. For example, It was not until Gian Domenico Cassini made the first true measurement of the distance between the Earth and the Sun that the distances to the stars could be established using a method known as parallax. Likewise, if we are to understand the physics of the larger universe, we need another larger measuring stick to use, and the most logical is the distance to our closest galactic neighbour, the Large Magellanic Cloud. Last month, a team of researchers as part of the Araucaria project published a new set of measurements they had made for distances to eight eclipsing binary stars within the Large Magellanic Cloud. Eclipsing binaries are star systems where one star will pass in front of the other with respect to the Earth's line of sight. By measuring the time it takes for the two stars in an eclipsing binary to orbit each other, the velocities of the two stars with respect to each other, and the shape of the light curve the system produces, it is possible to get a robust measurement of the star's distance. Using this method, the researchers managed to get an average distance to the Large Magellanic Cloud to be 162,902 light-years away to an accuracy of just 2.2%. However, there is a history with the Large Magellanic Cloud for researchers to quote distances to a level of accuracy that is much less than the actual scatter on the distances made by independent teams. In just several years, the Gaia satellite, an ESA mission to measure the distances and proper motions of up to 1 billion stars using the parallax method, will be able to conclusively determine the true distance of the Large Magellanic Cloud. Between 1995 and 2003, the Galilean moons Io, Ganymede, Callisto and Europa were extensively studied by NASA's Galileo satellite. One of the key goals for Galileo was to confirm whether or not there was a liquid ocean beneath the icy surface of Europa. 
By mapping changes in Jupiter's magnetic field, they detected small perturbations had developed around Europa. Quantifying this change allowed the Galileo researchers to deduce that Jupiter's magnetic field was inducing another magnetic field in Europa, which could only be created by the movement of an ion-rich liquid beneath the surface such as a salty liquid water ocean. Unfortunately, beyond this confirmation that liquid water was contained within Europa, Galileo's other instruments were not sufficiently sensitive to probe the chemical constituents of Europa's surface which would have allowed for greater insight into the environment beneath the icy sheets. Modern-day ground-based telescopes have come a long way in the 30 years since the launch of Galileo, and even though they are up to 600 million miles away, they are now able to measure precise spectra of Europa. This is exactly what a pair of researchers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory did, and they found markers for the salt, magnesium sulphate. The presence of magnesium sulphate on the surface indicated that there must be a method of transferring material from the ocean beneath to the surface since there would be no other reason for a salt of magnesium to be present. However, the oceans on the Earth have rich chlorine-based salts, such as magnesium or sodium chloride, but not sulphur-based salts which would be poisonous to life. Interestingly though, they could only find evidence for magnesium sulphate on one side of Europa, the side that, because Europa is tidally locked and does not rotate relative to Jupiter, is always exposed to the volcanic eruptions coming from the neighbouring moon Io. The researchers coupled this with previous research showing that Europa has a thin atmosphere containing potassium and sodium, and that most likely the surface as a whole is dominated by the presence of chlorine-based salts, therefore indicating that the oceans beneath Europa's cold exterior may be a dark reflection of our own Earth's oceans. And finally, HD 140283 is a star with a long history. It first caught the attention of astronomers over a century ago, as it was observed to be moving at remarkable speeds on a trajectory that would send it far out into the outer halo of the Milky Way, where only the oldest stars reside. It was conjectured that the orbit of HD 140283 was caused when its original dwarf galaxy host was destroyed and consumed during the formation of the Milky Way. However, this star holds an accolade far stranger than simply an unusual orbit. Soon after its discovery, astronomers found that using all of the tools and knowledge we had accrued in recent history for the task of dating the age of stars gave an extremely worrying result when applied to HD 140283. It was found that the age of the star exceeded the age of the universe. Measuring the age of stars in the past relied mostly upon circumstantial evidence, such as assuming that all stars within a single cluster will form at the same time and then by measuring the distance to the cluster, the star's spectra, and counting how many stars are in particular stages of evolution, the age of the cluster can be estimated as a whole. However, dating an individual star is far more difficult, and beyond the theoretical and technical abilities of astronomers in the past, hence giving stars like HD 140283 ages that exceeded the age of the universe by several billion years. By using modern-day detailed models for how a star evolves, alongside the extraordinary resolution of the Hubble Space Telescope, a team of astronomers have been able to refine the date of HD 140283. By observing HD 140283 as it races through the constellation Libra, the team has established that the star is 190.1 light-years away. Using this in conjunction with modern understanding for rates of fusion processes in stellar cores, a model which considers a process known as helium diffusion, where helium is pulled deep into the star, making it shine brighter, and new measurements showing the star is rich in oxygen come together to give a new estimated age of 14.46 billion years, accurate to within 800 million years. This measurement still dances precariously above the 13.6 billion year age of the universe, 
but unlike previous measurements, there is now significant overlap in the uncertainties. Regardless of HD 140283's true age, what we do know is that it is among one of the oldest stars in the universe and most likely formed only shortly after the Big Bang. Thanks for that, Christina. So all that's left to say is thanks to Dr. Matt Alger for the interview. The editors were Adam Averson, Claire Bretherton, Mark Perver, Christina Smith and Chris Wallace. The producer was Christina Smith. Until next time, this was the Jogcast April 2013 edition. Slow for me.